Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good afternoon. I'm Mark Zitter, the founder and chair of the Zetima Project, which hosts conversations with top political and business leaders in U.S. health. And I'm also a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors and your moderator for today's program. It's hard to believe, but it was 19 months ago that I moderated the first virtual discussion on the pandemic for the club. That was March of 2020, and we were just then learning about the coronavirus and its impact and the ways that communities could protect themselves. Since that first session, the club has held more than 150 different programs on the pandemic. And we wouldn't have been able to do it, and we probably wouldn't be here today, without some terrific support from members and donors who stuck with us during this pandemic. As we transition back to in-person programming at our club venue in San Francisco, there's no better time to become a member. So I encourage you to visit www.commonwealthclub.com, I'm sorry, .org, that's commonwealthclub.org, to learn more about our in-person programming and how you can support our 118-year-old tradition of bringing high-quality civil discussions on a wide variety of issues. Thank you for that. So on to today's program. During the pandemic, one of the clearest and most objective expert voices has belonged to today's guest, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. A former FDA commissioner, Dr. Gottlieb did everything in his power to help our country prepare for the pandemic, but when it arrived, we weren't ready. His new book, Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic, explains what happened in detail and discusses what we need to do for, yes, the next pandemic. So, Scott, welcome to the Commonwealth Club. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Now, to our listeners, before we get started, if you have a question for Scott or for me, please place it in the YouTube chat box, and those questions will be forwarded to me throughout the program. I will get to as many as I can, but I promise I won't get to them all, because usually we have a lot of great questions from our audience. So, Scott, first, I really want to thank you for all you've done for our country, not only as FDA commissioner, but subsequently as a private citizen. It's just clear to me how much you care about this country. And though you haven't been on the government payroll for, what, two and a half years or so, you've been working very hard in the public interest, and we're all in your debt. So thank you for that. Uh, by the way, that said, I'm not going to go easy on you with my questions. Let's start uh, one with may not be too hard, but uh, a, a grade, a letter grade. How would you grade the U.S. in its handling of the pandemic so far and why? Yeah, look, um, not well. I mean, I think it's hard to think of uh, assigning a letter grade. I, I think that we were excessively vulnerable to this pandemic in ways that were unexpected to us. I think that a lot of our planning for uh, past pandemics, the planning that had gone into trying to prepare for feared pandemic involving H5N1 bird flu that I had been a part of back in 2005 when we were very worried that bird flu was evolving in ways that was becoming more threatening to humans, and a lot of the, the sort of perceived capacities of our public health infrastructure, and particularly our CDC, I think people would have expected the U.S. to be better prepared for this. And we were excessively vulnerable. We were more vulnerable than a lot of our peer countries around the world. And I think that there was a sort of a system-wide failure in terms of our response. We really didn't have an organization that was capable of mounting the kind of logistical response and, and surfacing the real-time information that we needed to inform policymaking, inform judgments about how to keep our families safe, um, how to prevent spread of the infection, how to do the real-time analytical work that that required. There was a presumption that CDC uh, was able would would have been able to do a lot of these things, but 
I think in retrospect, there's now a realization that the organization really isn't equipped to handle a, a crisis of this magnitude, doesn't have the logistical capability, doesn't have um, the analytical capabilities, it's sort of a deep science organization that does very careful retrospective analyses, but does, isn't sort of a, a joint special operations command, doesn't have the kind of national security orientation that's required. So I think there needs to be a more fundamental rethinking of our whole posture with respect to public health crises of this magnitude. Um, and I think that's for surprising for most folks. And I think it's surprising even for some of us in policy who are close to this. Um, I would have thought that a lot of the planning that we had done in preparation for a pandemic for flu would have been more broadly applicable to a pandemic involving a coronavirus and that we would have been a lot better prepared than we were. Yeah, talk more about that because it's curious. You know, we're a big country. We're sophisticated. I think the World Health Organization had said in the in, prior to the pandemic, that the U.S. was very well prepared. And we had had pandemics before. Everybody said we were going to have another one. Why were we so unprepared? Um, multitude of reasons. I think, first of all, again, getting back to the preparations for flu, we had always sort of prepared for specific pathogens, um, flu being the one that we worried about the most. And I think we didn't prepare the kind of broad capabilities that we would need against pathogens that had different features. Um, you know, we, we sort of kind of prepared. We had a mon monocular focus on, on influenza. And what we really should have been preparing for was the whole category of viruses that replicate through RNA and that spread through respirations or respiratory droplets. If you're looking at uh, pandemic preparedness from that orientation, the, the universe of uh, viruses you worry about is much broader. The reason why you worry about viruses that replicate through RNA is because they have the ability to undergo rapid mutation. The reason why you worry about viruses that spread through respiratory droplets or aerosols is they have the capacity to spread very quickly. So we should have had a broader focus and focused on viruses that had different features and not just flu-like features. To give you sort of a um, where this kind of the rubber meets the road here is when we did the tabletop exercise, they talk a lot in the book about um, the failures to deploy testing. And I get into a lot of detail about what went wrong and some what I think is some new detail. And I wanted to do that partly for the historical record. And I did it partly because I think that the failure to deploy testing was at the root of a lot of our early problems and was a metaphor for our larger um, shortcomings. But testing is a good example to show how the focus on flu left us unprepared for a coronavirus. So in a, in a flu pandemic, testing would be less important. In fact, when we did the tabletop exercises to prep um, for a pandemic flu, crimson contagion, and other tabletop exercises, testing was never really um, something we talked about not having. We always assumed we'd have it, and it wasn't a big part of, it wasn't a big feature of the response. Why? Well, first of all, flu has a short incubation period. You come into contact with flu and you're sick three days later. So using testing to, as a way to do testing and tracing uh, and quarantine is less effective in flu because of the short incubation period. By the time you diagnose someone, it's like there's two more generations of spread, and, it, and you're never going to catch up. This coronavirus had a long incubation period, so you actually had the ability to use testing and tracing as a way to contain spread. Also, with flu, you're typically not symptomatic. You're not contagious until you're symptomatic. So you're getting someone diagnosed when they're asymptomatic isn't as critical to try to control spread. But with this coronavirus, you were most contagious when you were asymptomatic, um, certainly when you were pre-symptomatic, but then you had all this asymptomatic transmission. So getting people diagnosed, even when they didn't manifest symptoms, became very important. So in this setting, a test was very important. In the setting of a flu, a test wasn't that important. Plus, in a setting of a pandemic flu, you know, a pandemic flu is either going to be influenza A or influenza B. 
every doctor's office in the country has a machine that can diagnose influenza A or influenza B. You don't need to know that it's this specific strain of flu. If you have a pandemic flu and it's influenza B and it's circulating all around the country and someone comes into your office sick and you swab them and they have influenza B, you presume they have pandemic flu. So all so the entire installed base of flu testing would be sufficient. You wouldn't have to do PCR tests to find out the specific strain of flu. So we never contemplated having to scale PCR-based testing and open up respiratory collection sites uh, to, to have this massive testing program in preparation for a pandemic because we were always preparing for flu. And so we didn't have the tests available. And what uh, you know, I know you're going to get into this, but I'll just touch this. Why is it so? Why was that such a big failure in the beginning? And there were other reasons we failed. I mean, CDC didn't. CDC botched the rollout of its test. Policymakers didn't get the private sector engaged early enough in trying to develop, um, you know, commercial scale tests and get the academic labs in the game. That phone call should have been made in, in January. But why was the failure of a diagnostic test so, so such a setback? Number one, the country became very heavily seeded with virus, and we didn't know it. Um, we 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 were thinking in. February that we were keeping this virus out. The famous phone, the famous uh, press conference from Dr. Nancy Messonnier of CDC, where she said, you know, community spread was inevitable when President Trump was in India and he came back and put uh, Pres- uh, Vice President Pence in charge and the stock market tanked and the White House had the famous sort of two weeks of um, not taking action as they recontemplated the the whole strategy because of the reaction, the public reaction to that press conference. If you go back and look at the transcript at the beginning of that call, you know, yes, uh, she said community spreads inevitable. But at the beginning of that call, she said, but to date, there is no community transmission and our, our containment measures have worked. So we were under the presumption that there was a community spread. Why? We didn't have a diagnostic test and we were relying on the influenza-like illness surveillance system to detect spread, but it was an exceedingly imprecise tool for picking up spread. So we had this false sense of security. And then because we didn't have a diagnostic test, not only did we not know where the virus was spreading, so we became heavily seeded, but we didn't know where it wasn't spreading. And so when we finally were engulfed with infection in New York and, and New Orleans and Chicago and Boston and San Francisco, and we had to reach to population-wide mitigation to close down schools and businesses as a way to control the spread, those cities were clearly we had to adopt those measures. New York was on the brink of collapse. Its healthcare system was breached. But there were many parts of the country where the virus hadn't yet arrived. Remember, this was a highly regionalized epidemic, and it still has been a regionalized epidemic. The Delta spread, the current variant, is highly regionalized. So, and I'm pausing. I'm going to pause here. I promise you, Mark. So we didn't need to shut down Bozeman, Montana. We probably didn't need to shut down Houston. We could have used, if we had tests deployed, we could have used testing and tracing as a way to contain spread in parts of the country where the virus hadn't yet really arrived. But we shut down the whole country. And so when the virus finally arrived in the South, everyone down there said, we're done. We're not locking down again. We're not shutting down again. We did that and we're done with it. And so you couldn't preserve your most um, burdensome public health tools and target them at a time and a place when the virus really was on the brink of overtaking these cities. You, you use that up right at the outset because you, you didn't know where the virus was. It was a fog of viral war. We had no way of knowing not only where it was, but where it wasn't. And that was very damaging. We were out of patience by, yeah, by then. Yeah. So I want to go back to, you know, we, we, I understand why we're, the, the flu is different from the coronavirus. We were surprised by that. So it begs, begs the question, A, if it had been a flu pandemic, would we have handled it reasonably well, do you think? And secondarily, so we, we failed in our imagination to imagine it could be a coronavirus 
And we won't fail without imagination again because we've been burned so badly. But could we fail in our imagination again if it's yet a third type of pandemic? Yeah, look, I mean, first question is a great question. And the answer is no. We, we, we would have been probably better prepared, but we still wouldn't have been adequately prepared because I think we, we when we did the tabletop exercises and we sort of pan, planned for a pandemic flu, first of all, things like the, the stockpile were, you know, grossly uh, inadequate. Um, you know, we didn't keep up with it. We, we lost our focus. The facilities that we had created as a sort of warm base of preparedness for flu weren't able to be brought online. The emerging facility, which was transitioned to make the J&J vaccine, wasn't qualified to manufacture a vaccine, didn't have the personnel. The Texas A&M facility, as best I know, still hasn't really been used. So we built these facilities and kind of mothballed them or kept them warm. And what we know now is we need to keep a hot base of preparedness. We didn't have the excess biological manufacturing capacity to scale the production of monoclonal antibodies. So even the preparations we had made had, had atrophied and, and weren't, um, weren't the, the totality of what we would need. And we also failed to envision um, what would happen in a global pandemic. In a global pandemic, suddenly, if it's global, everyone's going to need the same things. And so what you're going to run out of isn't the, um, the biologic. You can, you, we can make that domestically. It's going to be the swab to collect the nasal sample or the little plastic pipette tip that goes on the top of the pipette to transfer the sample between wells. Why? Because those, it's always the low commodity product in a complex supply chain. I learned this at FDA. What goes into shortage? It's the lowest margin product because by virtue of the fact that it's a low margin product, it's been moved, production has been moved offshore to try to capture lower label costs. It's been consolidated because the only way to produce a low margin product is at tremendous scale. And since it's a low profit product, whoever is making it probably isn't investing in their manufacturing. So the manufacturing isn't scalable. So all of a sudden, you had to run on all these low commodity components and complex supply chains, and they were all overseas, and we couldn't get them. And that's that was the cascading series of shortages. So, you know, we never when we did all the tabletop exercises, that never came up. We never really thought about that. We were always worried about how do we get enough Tamiflu or how do we make enough vaccine. We never worried about how do we get enough plastic tips to transfer samples from well to well. So there's a lot of things we just didn't envision that I think we're gonna their learnings were gonna going to know now um, that are going to compel us to do things differently in terms of how we plan. I forget your second question, Mark. I'm yeah, sorry. well, just, you know, we so we failed to imagine a coronavirus, as the, uh, but we, right. we, we think about a flu. Is there a third option or something we may not imagine next time that we're in danger of? Well, there's always a third option. I think what we need to, you know, what we need to do in the future, and it gets back to that sort of RNA viruses that spread through respi respiratory droplets or, or um or aerosols, like that whole category. And if you're thinking of that whole category, coronaviruses are in it, flu's in it, but Nipah virus is in it, and then there's other things. And I think what we need to plan for are a set of characteristics. We need to, we need to plan for viruses that spread through droplets, viruses that spread through respirations, aerosols. We need to um, plan for viruses with long incubation, short incubation. We need to plan for viruses where we're going to need to deploy respiratory testing de novo using PCR. We're going to need to um, plan for viruses where we need to deploy uh, antibody testing, where we need serology. We need to plan for all those sort of um, characteristics rather than say, let's plan for coronavirus, let's plan for flu. Because even if we do have a pandemic with a flu or a pandemic with another, another coronavirus, it's possible that some 
mutated strain of flu is going to have features that make it very different than what our assumptions are about flu. I mean, we can envision a flu that spreads through asymptomatic spread. We can envision a flu that presents with neurological features rather than respiratory features. It's acquired some different characteristics. I mean, these things are possible. And so what we should be doing is saying, what are all the features of a virus that could become pandemic? And in having contingencies to mitigate those features. And, the, you know, the clearest example, again, is the testing. I come back to that because it's, an, it, it's like a good template to kind of look at what went wrong. What happens if a virus has a really short incubation period versus what happens if it has a really long incubation period? Testing becomes a whole different level of importance in those two scenarios. So we need to plan for both. Yeah, yeah. And both with testing and personal protective equipment, you know, it struck me we've got such a fragmented healthcare system and public health system. You got responsibilities distributed among the, the feds, the states, and the municipalities. And it's not always clear, actually, whose responsibility certain things are. And of course, we've got the capabilities that the private sector is important in, particularly in producing tests. So how does that fragmentation uh, impede our ability to combat pandemics? And, and what can we do about that going forward? Yeah, look, it doesn't help. Um, it, I think it, it made data collection very hard. Um, but some of the data, the difficulties with data collection weren't just like that you have 50 public health authorities feeding up information in different ways. Some of it is the way CDC collects data and is structured. CDC does not um, collect data from normal medical data feeds. They're not pulling, they're not culling data from electronic medical records and tapping into, you know, health insurance databases. They have these sort of bespoke feeds of data where public health authorities input information just for CDC uh, and the, the organization takes great pride in these proprietary data feeds that are just a sample. Um, so the, the place where this was most manifest, and so that a lot of the criticism of, a lot of the uh, observation of, you know, 50 state public health uh, departments uh, and was sort of disjointed and they were all surfacing information differently and it was hard to put it together. That's not a feature of our federated model. That's a feature of how CDC has chosen to collect information. It could collect information like the Medicare program. It could collect information like uh, the FDA, where it taps into you know EMR data that comes out of health insurers. They've chosen to work with public health agencies and get these bespoke feeds. So where was this manifest? Well, in the hospital data. So if you go back to April and you look online and it says, um, there's actually something on the website right now, CDC's website, that says any data before, I think, around August, I'm, I could be wrong about that, is unreliable on hospital admissions. They, they literally say it's unreliable. Um, why? Because what they were doing was they, were, they had a sample where they were sampling 1,000 hospitals of the nation's about 6,000 hospitals to collect data on how many hospitalizations were occurring in those 1,000 hospitals. And then they would model off the 1,000 hospitals what they thought the actual number of hospital admissions for COVID was. Um, now, this was an epidemic that was sort of moving around the country in different waves. So if you were oversampling or undersampling where the virus happened to be or happened not to be, you could get a very skewed uh, representation. In fact, like if you look at CDC's data, the whole northern half of California wasn't included in their sample. This came to a head finally when the drug remdesivir became available, and we had to start shipping scarce doses to hospitals based on actual hospitalized patients. You know, you only have a hundred doses; you want to send it to a hospital that has a hundred patients. And so Deborah Burke said, "I cannot ship this drug." to hypothetical patients derived from a model. I've got to know where the patients are hospitalized. And CDC basically said, 
we can't tell, give that, there's no way to collect that data. There's a famous quote in the science magazine, and I have it in my book, where they said that it's going to be impossible to actually collect that data. So the task was taken away from them. That's when they created that new system in HHS to start mandating that hospitals report how many hospitalizations they have each day, and Medicare passed some rules to compel hospitals to do it. And sure enough, the most reliable data set during the pandemic became the hospitalization data. So the Atlantic, the COVID tracking project, said the most reliable data set, this is their quote, was the hospital tracking data. So it was actually possible to track the number of hospitals each day. CDC just didn't want to back away from a system that, that they had built a culture around, which was this sampling system, um, which was highly ineffective when you needed to know a point estimate of how many people were being hospitalized. That's why, you know, just to give you a little bit of an aside, that's why if you go on to CDC's website right now and you set you look up how many people died of flu in the 2017-2018 flu season. It's going to say about 80,000, if I remember correctly. But if you look at that, the confidence interval is going to be probably about 50,000 to 110,000. I mean, probably not off by that. I haven't looked at it in a while. Why? Because it's not an actual estimate. It might say 80,233, but it's not 80,233. That is an estimate off of a model, off of a small sample set with a wide confidence interval. So this is data that could be collected, but it's not being collected. And that's why, you know, it, it made decision making in the beginning very difficult and left policymakers not as informed as they should have been. I understand. So we didn't really manage this smart. And we really, really in many ways, as you point out, the CDC wasn't very well set up to address this. And we were expecting the CDC to play almost the role of a commercial manufacturer of tests. What do you think is the better way going forward to make use of public-private partnership, which is part of the American system? Yeah, look, um, South Korea did this better. I mean, and look, there's there's sort of multiple places where we need to do this, but we need to have an agency. And I don't advocate creating a new agency. I think we're going to need to empower the CDC and properly resource them. Um, you're going to need a different component within CDC that has more of a national security mindset um, rather than a sort of academic culture that, that, that pervades that agency. And we've kind of created it with this little kernel of an organization, this modeling group. That, that there's, the people who are occupying that are epidemiologists who come out of that national security world. So it's a much different mindset. But you're going to need to have an organization that could quarterback a response to a public health disaster of this magnitude, almost like a FEMA for public health. And I think it can be within the CDC, but there's going to be have to be much more, much less parochialism and much more of engagement with the private sector, to your point. The diagnostic tests, again, are a good example. Um, Early on, CDC wouldn't share the viral samples with industry. Quest had to go to their subsidiary in South Korea to get a, a sample of the virus to start developing their own tests. CDC didn't share the viral samples till end of February. Um, there was CDC wouldn't let private industry use the CDC's test design without licensing it from them. They put in place IP agreements where companies had to agree to IP agreements. This is a crisis, and companies were spending weeks negotiating with CDC these licensing agreements. You're going to need to have an organization that has infrastructure in place to do a much more seamless handoff to industry to scale the production of the components that we need to respond to a crisis. And what ideally what you'd have is you'd have contractors in place that probably are paid to maintain some residual capacity that could be called upon by the federal government. So, you know, with biologics, we had no excess capacity to manufacture biologics. What happens if we, you know, said we're going to pay, we're going to put out a bid, an RFP to manufacturers to pay them for a call option on their facility. So if you're, let's say, Regeneron, and you operate your facility at 80% capacity, 
the government could say, we'll pay you every year a certain amount of money for an option to take over your whole facility or to take over X capacity, you know, uh, X millions of liters of capacity uh, in a time of a crisis. And so Regeneron, there's multiple ways they could fulfill that. They could freeze a whole bunch of their bulk supply so that they could burn down their frozen supply and turn over their facility to the government. They could say, you know what, we're going to overbuild our facility. And instead of operating at 80% capacity for maximal efficiency, we'll operate at 50% to maintain some resiliency so we can fulfill this implicit guarantee we've, we've made and we've, we're getting paid for. That's how we're going to have to think about preparedness in the future. And you're going to need an agency to kind of quarterback that. And it could be the ASPR. I mean, the vision always was that the Assistant Secretary for Planning uh, uh, and Response inside HHS was going to be the locus of this. But uh, even that office kind of wasn't, wasn't focused purely on the pandemic risk. So we need an insurance. This is an insurance policy in a sense. And it's a little bit like the strategic national stockpile. We got to keep that maintained. We hope we'll never have to use it. We think we probably will. And uh, we just got to invest in that. And maybe the same thing with capacity and so forth. Do you have any idea of what that would cost on an annual basis? No, I, you know, the, 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 there's been some estimates put out that I think the Biden administration kind of did a good, um, the outline of a strategic plan basically is how I would describe it. And they put some dollar figures on some of this, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be exorbitant. Um, you know, at least the things like take buying a call option on, on manufacturing capacity. I talk in a book about what happens if we, you know, re- required the example I used was the domestic manufacturer of N95 masks that you basically created vendor managed inventory where you, you allow you, you compelled us healthcare institutions to buy their masks domestically and it, and you converted the manufacturing to domestic facilities, what would be the sort of, you know, implicit cost of doing that over sourcing at XUS? And you're talking about, I think the estimate I had in the book was like a couple of billion dollars a year to move a tremendous amount of the manufacturing capacity to the U.S. in terms of the incremental cost. And then you're going to capture some of that back in like, you know, more U.S. jobs and taxes. I didn't figure out all that. So there's things you can do like that if you have... Uh, components that you want to have domestic capacity to manufacture and scale, that it wouldn't be exorbitant. Um, I think we have to move away from the concept of stockpiling these things and more towards a concept of vendor-managed inventory with domestic production capacity that's scalable. That's a very different concept. You don't want to just like make this stuff and put it in a warehouse. Um, you know, the example I use in the book, sorry, Mark, I'll give you one more example. After, after Hurricane Maria um, devastated Puerto Rico, fully 10% of all the manufacturing capacity on the island was offline. And I was at FDA at the time, was running the agency. We were very worried there was going to be a cascading series of shortages coming out of that. And so, you know, I call, I toured Puerto Rico. I went down to the island about three days after the devastation, but I called all the CEOs who operated facilities on the island to find out their status report. And every single one of them was down. They were basically, they had enough fuel and generator capacity on hand to operate their HVAC system so that they didn't lose the whole facility. Because if your HVAC went down, mold would overrun the facilities and you'd lose the whole facility. And I got, then I got to Amgen. Amgen operated a facility in a remote part of the island. I got the CEO on the phone, Bob Bradway, and I'm like, you know, Bob, how's your facility? And it was operating at, you know, full capacity. I mean, he had no interruption, but for he, a lot of his workers were devastated and couldn't come in to work. Um, but he had generators on hand to back up his generators and enough fuel on hand to operate that thing off the grid for a very long time. And I asked the obvious question, why did you build such a hardened facility? And the answer was, he said, we had made an implicit guarantee to the government that there would never be an interruption in the supply of Nupogen. Nupogen was made down in Puerto Rico. And he said, to fulfill that, we built redundant hardened facilities. 
So why did we do that? Why did, why did the government want that guarantee from Amgen and pay for it? Because Nupogen is a drug, as you know, used in the setting of chemotherapy, people who receive um, radiation therapy and cancer to reconstitute white blood cells. Um, but if you had a dirty bomb go off in a major U.S. city and a whole bunch of people became poisoned by radiation, you'd need a whole lot of Nupogen. And so we built, we overbuilt facilities and hardened them so that you'd always have a surge capacity for production. We need to think about that for the kinds of components we're going to need in a public health crisis across the board. We did it in that national security context as a contingency for a dirty bomb. We never had that kind of thinking outside of that very narrow national security focus, and certainly not in a broader public health context. So we can prepare much better. So one of the obvious questions, and I guess we got one from the audience that, that relates to this too, is, is to what degree has political polarization or politics more generally played into our poor response to the pandemic? And uh, 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 one of the viewers asked, what explains the fatality rate being so much higher in the U.S. than in its neighbor, Canada? Is that politically a, a, an issue or is it some other reason? Look, I think I think the excessive burden that we bore um, is a whole host of reasons um, in the U.S. You know, the, the sort of tenor of our response, the political divisions which divided us along the things that we could do that could mitigate some of the risks. The fact that we have um, tremendous disparities in, in health delivery in this country that left a lot of groups of people excessively vulnerable to this virus. Um, people who face bias in healthcare, lack of access to healthcare, um, implicit racism and how healthcare was delivered, people who had to continue to work through the crisis. Uh, they were essential employees who, who might have come from environments where they lived in crowded housing and multi-generational homes where if one person got infected and brought the virus back into a home or an entire family could be struck. I mean, there were, there, were, there were all kinds of social and structural reasons why I think we were excessively vulnerable you know, even relative to some of our peer nations who have some of the same challenges that we do, you know, where did politics play a role? I think where, at least at the White House level, I think there were, there were a lot of political shortcomings below the White House level. Like the White House political appointees can't, don't, don't have the experience to say, oh, we should get the commercial manufacturers working with CDC to try to scale the production of a test. You're dependent upon HHS to make that call and brief up to the White House. I mean, there were people in the White House who understood this. Joe Grogan on DPC had worked at FDA with me, uh, Matt Pottinger, and I talk about these figures in the book. But for the most part, your, your, your average White House political appointee isn't going to know these things. You're dependent upon your department heads to have this expertise and bring together the operating divisions that have the capacity. But I think where, the white, where, where I'm most critical uh, of the political response at the White House level was you know, the lack of consistency in being willing to um, galvanize public action against a common set of shared things that we could do to try to mitigate the spread. And I, and I think the masks are the most em emblematic of this, not the only one, but the most emblematic. Like if we could have gotten the American people behind consistent use of higher quality masks that we could have made available to them all the way through, uh, it could have had an impact. I mean, we still would have had a pandemic. We still would have had excessive death and disease, but it could have had an impact. And if we could have found a, 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 a handful of those things where we had more consistent adherence to things, that took political leadership. You know, that took sort of the, the, the moral and, and um, rhetorical leadership of a national leader, of the president. And instead, the president was ceremoniously taking off his mask 
while he was still contagious with the virus in the South Portico of the White House. I mean, what message did that send to the American people? So I think that was the the failure of political leadership was trying to galvanize public action against that this was going to be a long fight and we were going to have to engage in shared sacrifices. And I say that mindful of the fact that Americans sacrifice a tremendous amount. I mean, we set up homeschooling on the fly. People endured their businesses being shut down, having to school, you know, school their kids at home and have their kids at home. Um, you know, people, people got sick. People did wear, a lot of people did wear masks. Um, tremendous economic hardship. So that we, the American people endured an awful lot. So I don't want to say that, you know, that, that they didn't, they didn't sacrifice. They did. They sacrificed an enormous amount, but I think that there could have been more consistent focus and guidance around a, 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 a basic set of things that would have been the easier things that, that we could have done together to try to reduce the spread. No, it certainly became political for, for, um, uh, not only masks, but of course, vaccines, uh, shutting down schools and all those things. Um, and that's unfortunate, still is. Do you have any thoughts about how we could depoliticize COVID-19 at this point? Or at least, what about the next pandemic when we don't have that baggage directly? How can we depoliticize public health issues going forward? I think we need to be more mindful um, of, you know, what 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 are our goals and and what are we willing to do to achieve our goals? We need to be a little bit more deliberate about it. Um, the the vac- the vaccine efforts are a case in point. You know, the, right now seventy eight percent of the adult population over the age of eighteen has had at least one dose of vaccine. Most will complete the series. You know, the, the attrition is about ten percent. The attrition might be higher in the people who are more recently vaccinated because they're more marginal. Um, customers for a vaccine, so they may, might be less likely to follow up. But assuming the attrition is about consistent, that's a really high rate. I mean, where we, where will we get? I think we would have gotten to eighty percent with with the mandates that are being put in place. I think we could get to eighty five percent. Getting above that's going to be hard. Even if you look at pediatric vaccines, the best year for MMR vaccine was ninety four percent. And ten year average, most years we only get ten percent, ninety percent of children vaccinated with the MMR and with the diphtheria pertussis vaccine. The, the adherence to the entire childhood immunization schedule is only about 70%. And this is, these are vaccines that are mandated in kids for going to school. So getting 85% of the adult population vaccinated is going to be, um, you know, probably the sort of high watermark that we can achieve. What we should be doing is we should be saying, what is the level of vaccination that we need to create a, enough of a, a backstop enough of a wall of immunity to break off chains of transmission and really reduce prevalence, making a scientific judgment about that. Is it 85%? Is it 82%? Is it 86%? And we should be factoring in the fact that of the remaining population that remains unvaccinated, probably a lot of them have had COVID. And then we should have the policies that could get us there and decide which ones are more achievable than others, which ones will create more division than others and weigh them. And, you know, implement the ones that we think are more impactful, give you more bang for the buck in terms of what you're going to achieve relative to, you know, the sort of acrimony that you're going to engender. As it is right now, this feels very open-ended to me. We, we sort of have, you know, the goal of vaccination just seems to be more, you know, get more people vaccinated. We don't have a target in mind. I've never heard anyone talk about it. Dr. Fauci's talked about 85% being sort of a target, but we, we're not explicit about that. And then of the various policies we're pursuing, that we're sort of pursuing them all equally and there's no um, discussion about trade-offs. And I do think that some of them are going to be more divisive than others, particularly the mandate on small businesses. And the consequence of that is going to be that, that you're going to harden the positions of people who already see this as political. 
And if that ends up being the legacy of COVID, that now people look at vaccination as something they, they define their culture and their politics around, the consequences of that are going to be far more pervasive than COVID. You're going to see vaccination rates decline across the board. People are going to say, you know, my decision not to get vaccinated is an expression of my personal freedoms, and I'm not going to get vaccinated for flu and this and that. We never really had that before. I mean, we had a sort of an anti-vax movement in this country, but it, was, it was, wasn't something that was a part of the per- pervasive political lexicon. Now it feels much more mainstream to me. And I'm literally worried that we're going to see governors running for president on a platform of, you know, against vaccine mandates. And, and the distinction of being against vaccine mandates and against vaccines, that's a distinction that's going to be lost in a lot of people. And you're going to see a, a sort of anti-vaccine sentiment grow up. And that's going to be very deleterious to public health. So I worry about that. And that's why I think we should be having a much more kind of you know, thoughtful discussion about what is the goal, what are the policies that can get us there, which ones are um, will get us the most increments of more Americans vaccinated with the least amount of um, discord that gets created. And I just don't see that that discussion happening. Uh, and that's the, these are the kinds of things I worry about that will be more pervasive after COVID is over. Yeah, and it's broader public health issues too than just the vaccination with the masks and everything else. So obviously, you're, you're you've been, a, I think, a pretty clear centrist here, and not surprisingly, you're a venture capitalist, you're a Republican, you're also a doctor and a public health official, and so you believe in individual liberty, free markets, you believe in um, community uh, people acting so they don't get other people sick. It's all those sorts of things, but they can come in conflict when you're talking about vaccine mandates, mask mandates. Uh, immunization or testing requirements for using public buildings or transportation or going to school and so forth. So where do you draw the line? Where should public health needs trump individual freedoms and where should individuals really be able to allow to do what they prefer to do? Yeah, look, I think we need to recognize that these are not just individual choices. You know, your decision to get vaccinated isn't just an individual choice. Uh, Your decision to wear a mask isn't an individual choice. People see it that way, but these are collective decisions. The decisions you're making is affecting your community. Uh, So, you know, I I think we should be mandating vaccination. We should be, it's appropriate for a local official to mandate um, masks, but wherever possible, we should try to have these mandates be at a local level as possible. Allow it to be a choice of an individual business. Allow it to be the choice of the state or the community. And the federal government, wherever possible, should try to use incentives to drive that behavior if we think it's in the public good, rather than the federal government forcing it on local officials. I think that's where you start to get, you start to engender more of the divisions. When people feel that that the decision, a, a collective decision that's being made by the community isn't being made by their community, it's being imposed on their community. So you know, th- this is obviously isn't possible all the time. We have got a fast-moving pandemic. The federal government's forced to take action, decisive action quickly. Um, but this is the optimal. If you're asking me what is optimal, it is a system where you're providing, the federal government is providing incentives that's trying to drive the behavior, but the behavior, the decisions are ultimately made at the local biz- level by a business that realizes the only way to protect their employees and their customers is to mandate vaccination for their workforce. And maybe the federal government provides them a tax incentive to do that um, rather than telling them they have to. So now there's an economic incentive because the public good is is improved by that. And so, you know, the federal government helps provide compensation or the federal government um, incorporates into the Medicare program a star rating. In, In the existing star ratings, they start rating healthcare plans 
which drives reimbursement based on the percentage of their Medicare population that's been vaccinated for COVID. We haven't done that yet. I mean, we literally um, have incentives in place for healthcare plans to get their populations vaccinated for pneumonia, but not for COVID. Why haven't we done that? You know, why haven't we you know, used financial incentives to try to compel more Medicare plans to drive higher vaccination rates in the elderly population, which we know are the most excessively vulnerable to COVID? That to me seems like the low hanging fruit before you tell a business with 100 employees that they have to vaccinate their employees. So I, I, that's where I get back to what are the policies that could get us higher vaccination rates, get us the most bang for our buck without um, starting to create these political divisions and, you, and do that first. Um, and that's where you have more deliberate policymaking so you understand the trade-offs and you understand what you're trying to achieve. So I, I assume they're going to you know, pursue the Medicare policy eventually. That would have been top of my list. I would have done that first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are some questions about what a president could do or should do. Uh, mask mandates. First of all, would they reduce infections? I assume that they probably would, whether they could get away with it or not. And then also, could a future president declare a state of emergency to mandate vaccines? That's a could more than a should, but maybe you can't comment on both of those. Yeah, I don't I, I don't know um, about the issue of the national emergency to um, compel people to get vaccinated. And you always get back to a question of what is the enforcement mechanism. I mean, even with the mandate that they put forward, the, even with the mandate they announced on businesses using OSHA as a vehicle, they still haven't put out the regulations, so they haven't done it yet. I suspect that they're having a very difficult time writing those regulations in a way that they think is going to be legally sustainable. Once they put out those regs and they put them out for notice and comment, it's going to take time to finalize it. They're going to be in court and get sued. Um, then if they win the litigation, they're going to have to put out implementing guidance and then they're going to have to give a grace period for businesses to actually comply. And then they're going to have to set up an enforcement mechanism. So this is not, you know, this is more like a, you know, maybe next fall they'll have this in place, maybe over the summer. So you, you, they're not going to get anything for it immediately. You know, the argument from people who are advocates for the policy is, well, it gives political cover for businesses to start mandating vaccination right now. I think that's probably true. But I would argue I think businesses had a lot of political cover from the mandates that were being imposed on the federal workforce, which I think are fully appropriate. The federal government has, is well within its right to mandate vaccination in the federal workforce. And the antithesis could also be true, that businesses that might have mandated vaccination will wait to see what those OSHA regulations look, at, look like because they'll, they'll, they'll want to wait and put it in place when they have to comply with a federal rule as opposed to doing it in advance. So it's not, it's not a, um, a, a surety that, that that has had a measurable impact. As far as Mandating it under a state of emergency, I just don't know. Um, mandating masks, I think that that was looked at, um, and the federal tools for doing that were, you know, questionable. A lot of a lot of existing law, and this is well outside my, my my field, but I know that a lot of existing like law around public health and the practice of medicine is purposely left to states. The federal government, um, there's limitations on what the federal government t- can do to regulate the practice of medicine. And so I think that there's limited capacity to compel or mandate things that are healthcare interventions. You can use incentives to drive the states to do it, but I don't know that you can force states to do it necessarily. And that's why where you've seen the federal government step in to mandate things like masks, it's been on like, it's been in federal facilities, you know, Amtrak, airports things that have a federal hook associated with them. Even where the even the mandate that's going to be probably the most impactful around vaccination was the mandate around federal contractors, 
right? That's the one that's going to be legally sustainable. So American Airlines announced that they're going to, um, you know, they're going to mandate vaccines for their workforce because they are a federal contractor. So that's the one that's going to be the most impactful. Probably will not be the one that they talked about promulgating through OSHA on businesses with employees down to 100 employees, because that's going to be, I think, much harder to implement. Hmm. Well, it's funny that the, the two parts of the population that, that have struggled the most or have probably have suffered the most under COVID are those who just don't want the vaccine that they could get. And then the ones you mentioned before, disadvantaged communities, and that's partly a, a feature of our economy and partly a feature of our healthcare system and the disparities there too. Assuming we're not going to fix the health system totally, are there other things we could do to make sure that the next pandemic doesn't disproportionately impact people of color and other disadvantaged communities? I think it's fixing our healthcare system. I mean, I, I think the, the reason why those communities were excessively vulnerable had a lot to do with um, disparities in health, disparities in outcomes, disparities in access uh, to healthcare. Um, so I, I think part of it's going to be fixing our healthcare system. I mean, there's more profound challenge, social challenges that we have and cultural challenges and economic challenges that will be harder to fix but are addressable. But um, the ones within the context of healthcare that are more addressable are going to be things related to healthcare delivery and recognizing that if you have a portion of the population that's excessively vulnerable to disease and infectious disease, they're going to be excessively vulnerable to a pandemic. And, and, and if you're looking at public health preparedness through the lens of national security, trying to address those, those disparities and gaps um, in, you know, in vulnerability and outcomes is part of making the country more resilient to the spread of a pathogen like this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, if uh, President Biden asked you to come back as a CDC chief, and uh, one of the things he wanted you to do was to be better prepared for the next pandemic, what would you do if you were running the CDC? <laughs> After writing this book, you think I'll be invited to be CDC chief? <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't my question. Um, look, I... I I think that the CDC, uh, the, the mission of the CDC has evolved over time more towards its prevention work and away from its disease control work. And the mindset of the CDC has evolved away from the CDC viewing itself as part of the nation's national security to part of the CDC viewing itself as you know something like a school of public health in some ways um, that puts out really rigorous analysis. And you have to get back to that original mission set. When the Epidemiological Intelligence Service was first created in the 1950s, it was a very deliberate decision to put the word intelligence in the title because the people who founded the CDC wanted the agency to be perceived as part of the nation's national security infrastructure. That is not the ethos of the CDC anymore. Um, you know, much more that that agency is focused on smoking cessation and, and reducing heart disease. And those are important goals. We should have a public health agency focused on them. And maybe it's the CDC. Maybe it's not. Maybe we pull the prevention functions out of the CDC and have a component of the NIH or maybe the Assistant Secretary for Health oversee an agency just focused on that. And CDC focuses on disease control and pandemic preparedness and sort of more of the national security aspects of the public health mission. I, I, these are fundamental questions that we need to we need to debate. Uh, I don't think we can just keep these institutions the way they are. We we need to think about you know do we build a new component in CDC? Do we split the mission of the organization? These are ideas that have come up before, but it's been very hard to reprogram the CDC. I mean, even even where Congress has told the CDC to do certain things. So there's I talk in my book about legislation that was passed where CDC was directed to develop a real time reporting system 
getting back to my initial discussion about the fact that they didn't collect information systematically. And um, basically, the CDC didn't do it. They just ignored it. Um, the GAO did a report on it, and they said, yes, yeah, CDC decided that they weren't going to do it. Um, so Congress is going to have to come in, I think, get very granular with that organization, something Congress doesn't typically like to do. And I don't know that we that, that there's a lot of um, there's enough experience in Congress to do that. And so that's where you're going to have to create some outside commissions and groups. Congress did that with FDA back in the you know 90s. There was a perception of FDA as a poorly run organization. And Congress came in and wrote legislation, very specific legislation on how to reform the processes in FDA. And this was sort of a, in the context of Purdue for the early rounds of the user fee authorization, where some of those early user fee authorizations, there was literally language in one of them that told FDA how to hold meetings. This was a, this was a, a, a point where Congress was legislating how FDA should hold meetings with the public. Um, but it improve the agency. I mean, you, you have an agency that has, that's much more professionalized, very well run relative to other government agencies. And I have experience working across CMS and FDA, so I have some basis for comparison. I think the same thing's going to have to happen with CDC. I think there's going to need to be a fundamental reprogramming of that organization that's going to have to come with some new resources. So well-written legislation really might be able to be helpful there. It's interesting. You know, in your book, you go through a fair amount of detail about, uh, you know, day by day what was happening when COVID was emerging. We got a question from the audience about that, about could you share a bit more about your personal experience when you realized that COVID would be so severe? What were your thoughts? Who did you talk to? What did you tell your family that night? What did you really think the worst case scenario might be? Well, I mean, it was an evolution, right? Um, the, the first time I became really alarmed was was Martin Luther King Day weekend. It was that Saturday. And um, I talk about this in the book. I The number of cases reported out of Wuhan had gone from 50 to 200. And the 200 were all people who were very sick with pneumonia. And I was alarmed for two reasons. Number one, seeing the cases quadruple overnight was a pretty good indication that this was moving fast. And maybe the Chinese government wasn't being fully forthcoming with the the data if it went from, you know, 50 to 200 in one day. And a respiratory disease that presents only a severe pneumonia is highly unusual. Um, I guess SARS-1 presented that way, but SARS-1 didn't infect that as many people as quickly as uh, this seemed to be doing. So it suggested that there were probably hundreds and maybe thousands of cases that were going unreported and all we were capturing were the ones that, that had severe pneumonia. So I called up the head of the Domestic Policy Council. I was still talking to folks in the Trump administration at that point. And I said, you know, you should call I actually didn't call my text them. <laughs> I said, I said, you know, you and I, I relate some of these texts in the book. It was also reported in Yasmina's book, um, the two Washington Post reporters who wrote an excellent book, um, Nightmare Scenario. Um, I said you should reach out to HHS and ask for a briefing on this. Start to get engaged. And you know, my advice was that you needed to have the operating divisions of HHS coordinating that. This was going to require FDA to be working closely with CDC. And I talked specifically about the need to get a diagnostic test developed so we would be able to develop, you know, monitor spread that could be coming into the U.S. and how that took time to do that. There's a four to six month time frame on doing that. Um, and the head of DPC, it was Joe Grogan. He had worked with me at FDA when I was there as deputy commissioner. So I knew him um, from years ago from the Bush administration. He sent a, an email to the department asking for a briefing on it for that Monday. And that was the day that um, the secretary called the president for the first time. This was reported in the Washington Post to brief him on COVID for the first time, interrupting the president while he was on the golf course. And the Washington Post reported it. 
as the president, you know, he got a very tepid response. The president berated him for the policy on vaping, which was also something that was topical at that time. And the Washington Post reported it as, you know, a, an indication of the president's sort of indifference. Like he was the secretary briefing the president for the first time and the president didn't want to talk about it. Um, I think it was, I, I don't know the reason I, I didn't talk to the secretary or the president at the time, but I suspect it was sort of the, um, you know, the, the nature of the call coming while he was on the golf course. And I don't know that the request from the DPC chief asking for a briefing for the first time instigated HHS to want to brief the president ahead of that, recognizing the White House was now suddenly getting, you know, for the first time getting engaged in this at that level, at a political level, because DPC is a more political component of the White House. But it could have. It could have instigated um, what unfolded that weekend. The National Security Council had been already engaged um, at a low level, but but this was the first time the Domestic Policy Council um, chief, which is much more political proximity to the president, was asking questions about what was going on in China. That was really the first time I was alarmed in a, in a significant way about this. Um, and then there were various inflection points when you know my my fear level r- rose. And by the end of uh, January, I was writing op-eds saying you know the communication transmission could get underway, um, and you know, trying to sort of lay out a framework for how we needed to scale testing and take take other measures um, all through January and February. Um, Do you remember what anything you said to your wife or your close friends about what how bad this might get? Um, you know, I I remember at one point saying to someone that uh, a com- it was a comment that has been shared with me, and I repeated it that New York City may end up looking like Wuhan. And when I told people that, um, they thought I was out of my mind. I, I was saying that in February to some people in the government, too. Um, and they thought I was, I was out of my mind. I mean, I think New York City ended up looking like Wuhan. The one day that was very vivid that I remember, um, Liz Cheney invited me to brief the whole Republican caucus in early March. This was before the shutdown, before there was really an awareness that there was community transmission underway already in the United States, although I was very fearful that there was. And I'd written an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal um, you know, sort of saying as much that it's probably community transmission, we're just not detecting. And I briefed the Republican caucus in the morning, and the goal was to try to convince them to support the first stimulus bill. And I was pretty um, downbeat and I think a little bit scary in that meeting. And that's the way it was related to me by some of the members who were in that room. And in that afternoon, I briefed the, the Progressive Caucus. So the Democrats, the Democratic Progressive Caucus invited me to brief them. Um, and that was, it was a, sort of a very telling day because you know, the, the mood was very different in both those meetings, as you can imagine. Um, but, but the one pervasive sort of sense I got from all the members across the aisle, you know, the, the most conservative members and, and the most liberal members, was a real sense of uncertainty and fear about what we didn't know. Um, I think it was really was sort of the fog of viral war, and people were kind of groping around for information and you know, didn't have a lot of information on which to base uh, an assessment of how much risk we faced. And the answer was we faced an exorbitant amount of risk. At that point, we just hadn't realized it yet. Yeah, yeah. So when you go back to Martin Luther King Day in, in, in 2020, and you were foreseeing some bad things might happen, a lot of bad things did happen. What are the biggest surprises? What, what would have most surprised you <laughs> that's happened since then about this pandemic? Um, you know, how bad it's been and how... Um, persistent it's been. Early on when we had those estimates that if we didn't do anything, one to two million Americans could die, um, I thought to myself, surely one to two million Americans aren't going to die of this. These models are based on 
assumptions if we don't respond and we're going to respond. And, you know, there's 700,000 Americans dead now. It's through successive waves of infection. But to see that many deaths in, a, in an advanced economy with all the technology we have, uh, that's an excessive amount of death and disease. And uh, it's hard to really fathom how we let that happen and how that could happen. Um, I would have thought we would be better prepared to curtail this. Um, you know, ultimately, our technology you know, will will accelerate us out of this pandemic, but at a huge cost along the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know your book deals primarily with what happened, what we could have done about it, and what we should do differently. But we're getting a lot of questions from the audience. They knew we, we would about what you expect the future of the pandemic is going to look like of this current pandemic. How soon will we be out of it? How be much better will things be by Christmas time or next you know, Fourth of July or something? Yeah, look, I do think that this Delta wave, barring something unexpected, you know, a new variant that we don't really foresee now, which I think is a tail risk, but I think it's a, a, a low low probability risk. I think the future variants are going to be within the Delta lineage. Um, barring something unexpected, I do think this Delta surge is the last major wave of infection. On the back end of this, prevalence levels should decline across the whole country. But, you know, remember, um, we're looking at national averages and we see hospitalizations coming down and cases coming down. That's reassuring to people, but it's it's... Um, masking what's really going on. What's going on is that case levels are declining very sharply in the South, which had a, um, a massive wave of infection with an extreme amount of death and disease. But now you're seeing epidemics in the Midwest and the West. Now it's, it's less populated areas. And so it's not enough people being infected and hospitalized and dying to offset the rapid declines in states like Florida and Texas with their large populations. But it's an indication that this Delta wave is migrating across the country as we thought it would. And I don't think the North is impervious. I think we're going to see, you know, epidemic spread in the Great Lakes region and in the Northeast. You're seeing cases pick up. Um, and this is going to have to, unfortunately, course its way through the population. And the vaccinations that we're doing now are probably not in time to really affect the outcome. I mean, uh, people who get vaccinated now, surely it'll be helpful but they're not going to have full immunity in time to uh, to provide protection against an infection that's going to course its way through the population in the next four to six weeks. You know, unless you go out and get vaccinated today. Um, so um, some of this, the die is cast, unfortunately and tragically. And this Delta infection is very good at finding its way, given how contagious it is, into the geographic and social compartments that remain vulnerable. And most of those compartments remain vulnerable because they have chosen not to get vaccinated. Most Americans are going to end up with immunity to coronavirus. Um, some will have made a choice to acquire it through vaccination. Some will uh, acquire it through infection, unfortunately, either because they made that choice or, you know, vaccination wasn't something that was as, as accessible to them as it was to other people. Yeah, it's such a shame because we really do have a magic bullet. It's pretty close to a magic bullet and we're just not using it consistently. Well, um, I appreciate all this. We've come to the point in the program where there's time for just one more question. So here's what I'm going to ask you, because your book detailed so many, uh, so many things we did wrong and gives prescriptions for so many things we that would probably help us prepare for the next pandemic. And whenever I'm thinking about a big problem, I like to think about two issues. One is uh, what I have the best chance of actually being able to change. And then secondly, what would make the biggest improvement? So for the next pandemic, what's that intersection between the greatest impact and what really we're likely to be able to do in this country? Yeah, I mean, the, the two different, it, it's hard to say that, t to tell you what the intersection is. I mean, the thing that we're probably going to be able to change the most easily is is rearranging the deck chairs, you know, building out 
the components of government that have different capacities to be able to respond better. The thing that would be most impactful if we could change it is is dealing with some of the underlying social features of society that leave certain groups of people excessively vulnerable to COVID. COVID wasn't a disease that affected the population evenly. I mean, you know, certain groups were devastated worse economically by the policy measures we took, but certain groups were devastated um, disproportionately by the disease itself. And if we can resolve some of the aspects of society that leave um, some people more exposed to the risk from any infectious disease, and especially a pandemic, uh, that would make us more impervious to these kinds of outcomes. Mm-hmm. And from a policy perspective, I know you talk about if we could have some kind of joint special operations apparatus, you're not a big fan of new offices, but do you really think we should and could create some kind of a new centralized office that could coordinate some of the things that you were worried about? I think we will. I mean, I, I think it's inevitable that we will. It might be within the CDC. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of creating new agencies either. I think that you need to look within the existing agencies and build out different capacities. That's the most efficient way to make sure that these things are durable and, and effective. But I think you just need to create different kinds of functions and focus within some of the existing agencies. Getting, and also includes getting our national security agencies more engaged in the overseas aspects of this mission, monitoring for these threats overseas and not just relying on multilateral commitments and public health conventions to you know, alert us to the, when the next outbreak is going to occur. Yeah. Well, let's hope that the trauma that we've gone through nationally will actually get us to do something and, and sustain some of the problems. Because as you point out, we have to, it's like paying for an insurance policy every year. You never know when it's going to hit, but you think it's a smart thing to have. So uh, let's hope that this national pain will cause us to, 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 to take those actions you need to take and sustain them. Um, in any case, uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today's program. So, Scott, I want to thank you not only for today's program, but for all you have done and continue to do for the for the for our country, even though you're not in the payroll anymore. So, thanks so much for that. Thanks a lot. I want to thank the Commonwealth Club for hosting today's program, and of course, to our audience for uh, their attention and for all the wonderful questions. Only a uh, a fraction of which I was able to get to. And I want to encourage everybody to purchase a, co- a copy of Scott Gottlieb's new book. Look at the title here, Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. And you can get that wherever books are sold. I'm Mark Zitter, and this Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.